1207, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, now now be honest now. All, all you Packers fans out there, the Packers season, of course, I think would have been markedly different had Aaron Rodgers not gone out on what I thought was a cheap, unnecessary hit by a Minnesota Vikings player. Interestingly, you could make the argument, and I would make the argument, that the Vikings season might not have gone like it went had Aaron Rodgers not been injured by, like I say, what was I considered to be a cheap and unnecessary hit. So Aaron Rodgers goes down, the Packers go bad. Ultimately, maybe that's convinced the Packers that they need to make some changes. But I'm sorry, I don't know about you, I was not rooting for the Minnesota Vikings. Just just wasn't. And after the game last week where they're going to lose at home to New Orleans, and all of a sudden there is this miraculous play that's made, you begin to wonder, are the Vikings the team of destiny? Will they be the first team to essentially play in the Super Bowl in their own home stadium? What exactly is going to happen? I admit, going into that Philadelphia game last evening, I was thinking, boy, that the Vikings are going to win. Maybe this is going to finally be their year. And then, again, let us be honest. Let us be honest. The Vikings not only lose, they get slaughtered. They get run out of Philadelphia on a rail. They score the first touchdown, and then that's pretty much it. It was an old-fashioned butt-whumping. And I got to tell you, I enjoyed every single moment of it. Maybe that, maybe that's not fair. They call it schadenfreude or whatever. But I enjoyed every single moment of that event. Just watching, just watching the Vikings get absolutely beat. And you got to wonder whether or not this was the Vikings' chance. Because I think, candidly, I think the Packers are going to be back next year better than ever. And I guess, in retrospect, as upset as I was. Two weeks ago, when the Vikings were able to steal that game at the last minute, it was all worth it. All worth it when you watched what ended up happening yesterday. And if that makes me a bad person because I thoroughly enjoyed watching the Vikings not only just lose, but just get pummeled. You know, everybody's at the Mall of America doing that stupid skull chant and things like that. I, I'm sorry. If you're a Vikings fan out there, I, I would like to say that I feel your pain. But no, I think kind of you deserve your pain. Just just saying, love you otherwise, but you, you get what you deserve. All right. The long or actually short national nightmare ha- has ended. The uh, government shutdown apparently will not take place. The announcement in it will end shortly. The announcement came out about 15, 20 minutes ago, is that the Senate, now keep in mind, the House had passed a continuing resolution which would have kept the government open at least for another few weeks. The hang-up was in the Senate where you need, and some people are getting confused about this, it, it it's not just something you could do by a simple majority. You needed 60 votes to break a filibuster. So it, even if you had every Republican who voted for it, that would not be enough because there's only 51 Republicans in in the Senate. So the Democrats were able to essentially hold this country hostage, and that's pretty much what ended up happening. Well, the announcement that came out within the last 20 or 25 minutes or so made by Chuck Schumer, and this is the Schumer shutdown, was that the Senate has enough votes to move forward on a plan to end the government shutdown. Now, 
what's happening is apparently there is the bill which would fund the government through February 8th is expected to be passed by the Senate and then the House today. President Trump apparently is willing to sign this into law. Um, Senate Democrats had previously said that they were not going to vote to end the shutdown unless and until the Senate passed some form of legislation that would deal with the DREAMers, the the, the DACA Act. Um, they've now backed away from that. Apparently, the agreement is the shutdown will end. The government will be funded through February 8th, while Congress continues to negotiate on immigration and spending matters. Um, the idea is that there's been a, at least a verbal representation that there will be some, some, vote on DACA by early March. Now, I don't quite understand the dynamics of this and how this is all going to end up working out, but at least for the moment, the shutdown is over. All right, we got a lot of great stuff coming up on today's program. Back to kick it off in just a minute. It's 1212. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1214. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Governor Walker coming up in less than 20 minutes. Want to talk to him about his decision to essentially prop up the Obamacare markets in Wisconsin and then the upcoming State of the State address. Kind of interesting, all the different stuff that is going on. Um, the big news, of course, and this is big story number one, the government shutdown ends not that long after it began. And my guess is almost nobody noticed what happened. Now, here's part of the problem, though. With the arrangement that they have, this is a temporary arrangement. I mean, the funding, quite candidly, this is only another couple weeks. So we will probably be at the precipice a couple weeks from now. But I've been thinking about this all weekend. If you look back at past government shutdowns, one of the things that has happened is there has been very, very little consequence to the people who are actually in government. Now, as a general rule, if you don't work, you don't get paid, right? That's the general general way we approach things, unless you take vacation. Historically, with government shutdowns, when they have furloughed federal employees, what has happened is as soon as the government shutdown has ended, the federal employees have received their back pay, even though they didn't work to earn it. So if they were furloughed for two weeks, they get paid. Um, So there's no consequence at all to them, other than the fact that there's the inconvenience for people who live paycheck by paycheck of not getting the money. But based on past experience, it's been pretty clear that federal employees, I think, know that, gee, you know, if as, as inconvenient as the shutdown is going to be, it's only going to be a short-term problem because once they get the government back running, we are going to be paid. So essentially what you're doing is you are getting a paid vacation, admittedly while your paycheck might be deferred a week or two. I have always thought that one of the ways to avoid this and to put pressure on the people who take us up to the brink and sometimes past of these shutdowns would be if we were to come out and simply say, you don't work, you don't get paid. Because at that point in time, what you would find is you would find tens of thousands of federal employees who suddenly are saying, hey, our our money is in jeopardy. 
politicians, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, whatever, you guys have to get off your butts and get this done if we're not going to be getting our back pay. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Over the course of the weekend, President Trump was talking about the so-called nuclear option that is um, – changing the rules in the Senate to avoid the ability to filibuster unless you have 60 votes. I don't think that's the way that he should have proceeded. I think if President Trump would have come out and said, look, this this shutdown is going to be different than others, and that is, first of all, we are not going to take the Barack Obama route. We are not going to try to figure out how to inflict as much pain as possible on the American people by the different types of things that we shut down. Number one, if he would have said that, and he did, I think he deserves credit. But number two, if he would have said, and by the way, moving forward, we expect that people are going to have to work. And if people are laid off and they don't do the work, um, well, unfortunately, they are not going to get paid. And the result of that, I think, would have been for federal employees all across this country to have then gotten on their phones, called up their congressman, called up their senator and said, hey, wait a second, you're messing around with our livelihood now. What do you mean we're not going to get back pay for work we didn't do? I think that's one of the ways that you would have brought political pressure, because in like I say, in past shutdowns, in past shutdowns, the only the, the only people that were inconvenienced essentially have been the taxpayers, the people whose, you know, again, you're, you're, you need a replacement Social Security card, that's delayed. You take a field trip to Washington, D.C., and they've closed down the Smithsonian's. Yes, the taxpayers have been inconvenienced, but actually federal employees haven't. And maybe you could argue it's not fair that you punish the federal employees, but my theory would be you don't work, you don't get paid, and that's a way to bring political pressure, like I say, onto the politicians. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is one of the ways to reduce the possibility of future shutdowns simply to say we're not going to be issuing back pay to the tens of thousands of federal employees who are going to get laid off. If you don't work, you're not going to get your money. So call your congressman, call your congresswoman, call your senator and tell them that they're going to be mad at you're going to be mad as you know what if the government shuts down. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think that is something that, again, is long overdue. And it's not part of a war on federal employees. And I'm not claiming that federal employees, you know, don't deserve, you know, to be paid or things like that. I am just saying that you need to have skin in the game. And right now, whenever we get to these government shutdowns, it's only you and me. It's only the taxpayers who get hurt. And you know, again, the politicians are like, well, that doesn't necessarily matter. But if you if you put skin in the game for tens of thousands of federal employees, many, many of whom, quite candidly, are Democrat voters, I guarantee you that you might see a different dynamic. 414-799-1620, Wayne and Colgate. Wayne, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Yes, hi. Hi. Uh, I agree with you to a certain extent in the fact that, you know, if they made it that nobody would get paid, that it would put more pressure on the congressmen or the senators. Mm-hmm. problem is with this last, this latest one, as I understand it, they had a bipartisan agreement 
late last week, and the president agreed to it. And then after he talked to some of his more militant staff members, he blew it up and changed his mind, and that's what caused this shutout, this shutdown. So, you know, the president's got to be a little bit more honest about what he wants to do. Well, and I think, and Wayne, and I, I again, I, I, I think it's fair. I, I think there's a lot of blame to go around on, on this one. I, I think the reality, though, is what happened this time is, again, it was the gamesmanship that you saw. You had Chuck Schumer who sees, and Senate Democrats who see a vulnerable president. And so what they ended up doing is holding the budget process hostage over this immigration issue. And I think, you know, I don't know what went on in the negotiations between President Trump. President Trump hasn't been at least directly involved over the course of the last week. I was watching Good Morning America today, and they were beating him up on that. So, I mean, it's one of these deals where Trump can't win. If Trump's involved in the negotiations, well, he's bad. If Trump's not involved in the negotiations, it's bad. But what you had here was the budget process being hijacked over this immigration issue. Okay, fine. All's well that's end well ends well but i think moving forward the way to avoid this again is to say look if if this is going to be painful it's going to be painful all around and for like i say one of the steps is all the federal employees you're not getting back pay 414-799-1620 marcus who's calling us from illinois you're on wtmj hello hello what do you think uh, basically, I think they shouldn't get paid. You know, I, I think, I and mean, I was shocked when I heard this about a couple of weeks ago that they still get paid. If they're not working, you know, the taxpayer shouldn't really owe them any money. Now, I agree also that uh, you know, if you're calling in, if, if if this is affecting your paycheck, you'd be more prone to make sure your congressman and your senator are doing their job in meeting to to, to solve these problems. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, if you're, and again, I I don't mean to take it out on federal employees, but in general. You don't work, you don't get paid. You know, you right. you go out. Let, let's take the private sector. You go out on strike. Now, I understand it's it's the kind of apples to oranges because the federal employees want to work. But you know, you go out on strike or you get locked out. You're you're not going to get paid for the work that you end up missing. So, pick up. You're right. It's a way to force the federal employees to pick up the phone and call. You know, their congressman and saying, "Knock this stuff off." You know, what do you mean we're not going to get paid? Yeah, and there's no initiative for the, the federal employees. Maybe they want some time off, and they're going to get paid for Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, exactly. Thanks for the call. Now, again, I'm, I want to appreciate there is an inconvenience. I mean, if you're a federal employee who is furloughed, um, you're, you're not going to – and you're, you're expecting you – know, they pay federal employees every two weeks. So if you're expecting a paycheck, you know, a week from Friday or whatever, and the shutdown lasts three weeks, you're not going to get that paycheck. So there is an inconvenience, particularly for people who work, uh, again, you know, who, who live paycheck by paycheck but and this is an important but you know if you know that oh it's no big deal because sooner or later the government obviously is going to figure out a way to fund itself and when that happens when that happens i'm going to get my money back anyways well if that ends up being the case well well who cares um 414-799-1620 let's talk to susan in greendale susan you're on wtmj hi hi susan what do you think Great program. I think that the politicians shouldn't get paid. Don't pay them until they get to an agreement. Uh, yeah, I, well, that, that's, matter of fact, it's interesting because over the weekend there were a handful of politicians, mostly on the Republican side, who exactly, I mean, they sent letters saying exactly that. We, we, you know, if our, if our constituents 
are being inconvenienced or are being furloughed and not getting paid. We we don't want to get paid either. I guess my, I would take it though one step further, Susan, and say again, it if if it's not just a question of not getting paid, it's a question of should you get back pay? And if government shut down, well then government is shut down. If you're not working, you're not working. Period. Right, and no back pay either. So yeah. I mean, good for those Republicans. Right, and it's just a handful of them. But I mean, I think that's one of the keys that you have. I mean, thanks for calling. Again, I, I think you you need this. Is, that's why I was hoping that the President Trump was going to come out and do that because to me, that that's where the pressure really comes. And and this is let's face it, this is no way to run a government. And, and it's and this happens. Two thousand thirteen was the last shutdown under Barack Obama. I mean, I remember going back to you know, what, 94, 95, when the Republicans in Congress shut down the, the, the government over different issues. It almost never works. Democrats do it because they know that it's going to be the Republicans that, that get the blame, even though in this case, this was clearly the Schumer shutdown. I mean, this was the Democrats trying to link keeping the budget, got the government open, they were trying to link that with the idea of having a vote on a completely separate issue, immigration. This wasn't a fight over, gee, we think we're spending too much on this or spending too much on that. This was a fight over something completely and totally unrelated. And as I have said before, I think our immigration laws in this country are a mess. I, I just I, I do. And I think we have to have some sort of long-term strategy. What gives me pause about this deal is – we, we kick the can down the road a little bit. You get this continuing resolution that keeps the government running for another 17 days or whatever. Well, my guess is 17 days from now, we're really not going to be any closer to reaching an agreement on immigration than we are now. Where does that leave us? But at least for the time being, at least for the time being, the Smithsonian stay open. People who need replacement Social Security cards um, get them and the government continues operating. And some people would argue that that's not necessarily a good thing, but I think it is. 1227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Ever since Obamacare hit this country, I have been arguing that people in Wisconsin in particular are a lot worse off. Quite candidly, I think what we were doing in this state before Obamacare offered a wider range of choices, better coverage, better protections for Wisconsin citizens. And if we could talk about reforming the Affordable Care Act, I think using Wisconsin's model pre-Obamacare would be a great way to go. It has always been an issue, and I know it's been an issue of concern to the governor of the state of Wisconsin, and we are now joined by Governor Scott Walker. Governor, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Okay, let's talk a little bit about insurance. I mean, over the the weekend, you announced that you are now going to ask for federal permission to cover expensive medical claims for health insurance on the marketplace. What's that all about? Yeah, you know, the biggest issue I hear from people around the state about health care is stability. They're concerned about uh, what the future is going to mean, what kind of stability they have, and it really breaks down to three areas. One, most of us get our health insurance from our employer. So, we saw in the employer market uh, premiums on average increase less than 5%. Well, I would love to have no increase. That's pretty reasonable. So the first step is saying, no, most people are telling me, no matter where they get their health insurance, is they want to cover pre-existing conditions. Right. They want to make sure if someone has cancer or some serious ailment or disease that they're 
They're not going to lose their coverage. So we're making it clear going forward. We want a law change to make sure that pre-existing conditions are covered. Secondly, seniors, uh, those over a certain age, get their health insurance from Medicare. Uh, we don't run that. The federal government does. But senior care is a supplement to that. We want to make sure we're permanently able to do that going forward. But then the third part gets to the heart of your question. That is, out of 5.8 million people, about 200,000 people get their health insurance not from their employer, not from Medicare, not from Medicaid, but by buying it on the individual market. And here in the state of Wisconsin, because of Obamacare, the individual market has gone up by 36%. In fact, in some places in northeastern Wisconsin, uh, under some of the Obamacare plans, it was going up uh, by about 120%. That for a, a one young woman I'm going to mention on Wednesday at the State of the State means an increase of about $2,000. That, that's just unacceptable and unsustainable. And so what we're proposing to do is not have the government expand coverage, not expand uh, the Obamacare, Medicaid issue as some of the Democrats have pushed. That would just put more people in government assistance, but rather use our tools at the state level to drive down the cost of premiums in the individual market, get them so they're compatible with what the rest of us are paying at the, uh, the employer-based level, and make it affordable to get health insurance. Is it is it the catastrophic claims that you believe are, are driving some of these big health care increases? That's exactly it. And it's not only that premiums have gone up by 36%. Is if you look under Obamacare, not only have premiums skyrocketed. And remember, uh, it's not just me saying it. The governor of, of Minnesota about a year and a half ago, a Democrat, Mark Dayton, said the Affordable Care Act is no longer affordable. So we've got to address it. But it's also driven out of the market, uh, at least under a number of these individual plans, uh, major in, in, uh, carriers here, and so many people have uh, have limited choices. In some cases, only have one choice uh, in counties across the state. So our belief is by helping them drive, uh, take off these high costs, reduce the impact of these high costs, they can not only lower premiums, we believe more um, plans will reenter the market. It'll give consumers more choices, and with more choice means more competition, which will not only help people buying like a small business owner on the individual market, it will actually help drive down premiums for everyone, no matter where they get their health insurance uh, from, and that's good for all of us. But the key is I love how some on the left somehow think this is their issue. Health care is not a Democrat nor a Republican issue. It is a Wisconsin issue. The difference is their answer is to take a whole bunch of federal taxpayers' dollars, our tax money, and try and drive a whole bunch of new people under government dependence. I think that's a faulty idea. Instead, I believe where the government can be a partner is helping these plans take care of the high risk, drive down the cost, make premiums affordable so people can work and run their own businesses, start their own companies, and not have fear of not being able to afford access to health care. You know, Governor, I'm sitting behind the microphone. My, my head is nodding. The, 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 the frustrations I hear when I talk to average people who are who buy buy insurance in the individual market is number one the cost but also what you were talking about that lack of choice they, they point back to you know before the affordable care act where you had a number of insurers that were in the marketplace and you could go to your insurance agent and you could compare different plans and different costs and now in many counties that that's gone away like you say one one company maybe two maybe three but there's not the choice that you used to have and the irony is liberals somehow want to say oh no we're not going to give you any choice we're going to just stick you on 
to, to uh, another federal government expansion. Now, that's not the answer either. The answer is to be a good partner, to drive, to drive things down, which will in turn offer more choices, more options, more competition, and ultimately, we believe, lower premiums for just about everybody out there. That's the market-driven, those common-sense, conservative ideas we've talked about for years. And people ask about the timing. It's simple. We had hoped, uh, while I'm pleased that they passed tax reform and tax relief federally, they still, after a year, have failed to act on the thing they said they were going to act on right away, and that is the federal government passing health care, uh, a repeal and replacement of Obamacare. And so while Washington fails to act on this, Wisconsin is going to lead yet again. Now, Governor, the devil is always in the details, and obviously there there is a cost to this. Um, what what are the costs? Who is going to bear that? And ultimately, will it make dollars and cents for Wisconsin? It's two hundred million dollars uh, that allows us to get to this. Because my goal when I came and told our team to look at how to put this together uh, last year, as we prepared for the state of the state to roll out this overall ambitious agenda, was I said I'd like to get premium levels on average for the individual market somewhere in the same range of what we see on the individual market. This this year, thankfully, premium increases are less than 5%. That's fairly modest on the group market, which is where people, the market where people get it from their health, their health insurance from their employer. Um, this $200 million allows us to drive down that, that cost at higher risk. Uh, we believe conservatively that three-quarters of it will come from the uh, amounts that we get from the federal government as part of the current formula, and then the other quarter will come from the state. But the good news is we've already enacted this year a number of reforms that have saved us money, and it will mean the our portion of that $200 million will come out of the existing savings we've materialized, and we won't have to add any new uh, money out of the budget. Governor, let's talk. Let's switch gears a little bit. You've got the state yeah. of the state address coming up on Wednesday. What are some of the things that we could look for? Obviously, this is going to be part of it, but what are some of the other things you're going to be talking about? Well, we've got an ambitious agenda. A lot of people in the media, uh, other outlets in the media, somehow thought we were going to just lay back. No, we've been working with Robin Voss and Scott Fitzgerald and the rest of the team there. We've got an ambitious agenda. We're going to tackle a bunch of big issues. We're going to do more to help with education on top of our historic investments in the K-12 education. We're going to do more uh, working with our colleges and universities to help our students obtain careers that will keep our graduates here in the state of Wisconsin. We're going to do more to address workforce issues and specifically talking about welfare reform and new work requirements and ways to drug test to get people healthy and in the workforce. We're going to do more to talk about government reform as well as talking about ways to help working families uh, reduce their tax burden to do more to help with their kids. And, and ultimately, we're going to talk about the details of what I just mentioned, ways to stabilize health care in the state of Wisconsin. That is an ambitious agenda for 2018. Unlike the frustration the last few days in Washington, where many people feel like they can't get it done, we are getting the job done. We're getting positive things done for the people of Wisconsin. Governor, let me switch gears again. Lincoln Hills, obviously it's been an, an issue for several years. Um, you came out a short while ago and said that you've come to the conclusion that it should be closed. Are, are we going to be fast-tracking that, do you anticipate? Yeah, we came out with a plan, and uh, we worked for over a year with county officials, with judiciary, with lawmakers from both political parties, as well as experts from across the country, Remember, there have been a number of changes at that facility. So this wasn't the first time that the state government addressed this. We've made changes in terms of staffing, compensation, 
uh, even things like cameras and security items, and even change in terms of how medicine uh, was uh, distributed uh, to serious offenders there. All that's changed over the last few years. But long term, we just looked as we looked at the situation and said the better model, the the uh, looking at the best uh, practices across the country, was to go from what's been around for decades, long before I was there, which is a one or two large scale institutional structure, into in this case uh, six different sites spread out around the state. One of which would be specifically at Mendota Mental Health Care Facility where they have a, a nationally recognized mental health program uh, for juveniles. The other five would be located around the state of Wisconsin, and we work with the counties because they're the ones that send these serious offenders in the first place. The counties would be the ones we'd partner with to help make the right location. Uh, siding would be them. We still have you there, Governor? Yep. Okay, got it. Let me, but before I let you go, let me let me just ask you again a sort of a horse race political issue. Last Tuesday, uh, a lot of people surprised Republicans lost a Senate seat in Northwest Wisconsin. You described it as as a wake up call. What do you attribute that loss to? And moving forward, what do you think Republicans need to do in 2018 to avoid similar losses? Well, I think without a doubt, Wisconsin and really around the country, but particularly here in Wisconsin, it was a wake-up call. And by that I mean uh, we cannot assume that our neighbors and friends know all the good things we're getting done, all the positive things we're doing for the people of Wisconsin. So whether it's last week announcing 3% unemployment, historic low, whether it's employment overall being at historic high, whether it's investments in the schools being at the highest level in history, uh, getting rid of the state property tax, being ranked number one in the nation for quality and health care, uh, getting uh, uh, six years in a row of tuition freezes at the University of Wisconsin for all of our in-state undergraduates, reforming the welfare system, helping twenty some 25,000 people go from welfare to work. All these are good and amazingly positive things happening, but I, I, I think a lot of us, you guys talk about it, and your listeners probably know about it, but I think a lot of folks would be surprised if they ask their friends and neighbors. They don't know about all the good and positive things that we're doing. I also think the other lesson, again, particularly in light of the shutdown the last few days, to <coughs> me is to remind people of the difference between Washington and Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. In Washington, many people feel, including many Republicans, feel like they're not getting enough done, that it's, other than the, the tax relief and tax cuts that Obamacare being repealed and replaced and many of the other things haven't happened yet. So there's huge, I mean, a, a large level of disappointment and frustration with Washington. In contrast, we're getting things done in Wisconsin. These are good, positive, decent things for the people of our state. We've got to lay out a contrast and we've got to get people energized and make sure that people know the difference and know what's at stake. Because I'll give you one good example. Eight years ago, this month, January of 2010, unemployment in our state was at 9.2%. We don't want to go back to the days of double-digit tax increases, billion-dollar budget deficits, and record job loss. We want to keep moving forward. There's more work to be done, and uh, we need to tell that positive story. Governor Scott Walker, thanks for joining me this afternoon. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Thanks, Jeff. Have a good one. Take care. That's Governor Scott Walker. His State of the State address is coming up, and, and, and I'm actually glad to see him talking about these health care issues, because as I said when we started off this segment, one of the frustrating things to me is that 
whatever the issues were with health care, I thought the system that we had in Wisconsin worked pretty well. You had competition. You had choices for people that were at high risk. You had affordable options for them. And Obamacare pretty much changed that whole dynamic. I think this is a way of kind of getting back to where we were. And that's that's a good thing because people shouldn't have to worry about coverage for pre-existing conditions. You shouldn't have to worry if you've got a diagnosis of cancer and you lose your job, are you going to be able to get affordable insurance? You, you shouldn't have to worry about that. And I think Again, it's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democrat issue. It's a people issue, and I think all of us get it. And this sounds like the governor is on absolutely the right track. It's 1249. This is Jeff Wagner. 1253, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Does the Super Bowl matchup of Eagles-Patriots get you fired up, or will the next two weeks be filled with ho-hum hype? Greg Matzik wants to hear your thoughts on the team squaring off in Super Bowl 52, Sports Central this evening, starting at 607. It is a heck of a world. Oh, over the weekend, um, Stormy Daniels, who is, of course, better name known as, well, depending, if you're known to her friends as Stephanie Clifford, she is the um, adult entertainment star who purportedly had an off-again, on-again affair with President Trump back in 2006 and 2007 and 2008. She's in the news because reports surfacing that um, shortly before the election in 2016, she was paid $130,000 in quote-unquote hush money, a confidentiality agreement not to like sell her story to people. And uh, the, the Trump the Trump camp is, you know, denied that there was any sort of relationship or whatever. I, I, who, who knows what the who knows what the truth of that is? And of course, the, the her name, her stage name is Stormy Daniels, which as I've always said, you know, I, I just I'm fascinated by the porn stars and how they get their names. Typically, what I've always heard is you take the name of your childhood pet and then you pair it with the street that you grew up on, and you kind of like flip them around, and you can, you can play with it. For example, for me, it would be Acacia Sunshine or Sunshine Acacia. Melissa Barkley. Okay, if, if this was you. Childhood pet. This you is have a pet? horrible. Did you have a uh, pet I did have up? a pet growing up. Yes, I had a pet cat. Okay, name? Zipper. <laughs> I and, like this already. And, and, and this, this, the, the street, street going up. was Stevens, Zipper Stevens. Zipper Stevens, see, it always works. It always works. That's amazing, Jeff. It, it you all, have that, those calculations. It, it, it always works. So, I mean, Stormy Daniels, she probably grew up on Daniels Court and had a cat named Stormy or something. In any event, I, I got distracted. But there, she she's out, and this, this shows um, America is a great country or a heck of a country or whatever because she she was – making appear an appearance in Greenville, South Carolina at um, as part of her her tour. So she's now out on tour. People were apparently lined up for a, a long way waiting to get in to watch her her act, which was at 11 at one o'clock and to pose with her for for photographs. Now that that's that's one of the things I can just imagine you got the picture of yourself with President Trump. And then you've got your picture of yourself with Stormy Daniels, and and she's being well paid for this appearance. So she apparently got 130 grand for not telling her story, and now um, twenty dollars, twenty dollars a person cover charge to get in, and who knows how much to have that photograph taken. All right, so. Ah, if you didn't get your Christmas present, you might want to catch up on the Stormy Daniels tour. All right, when we come back, a lot of interesting stories, including a story about something that the county board might be planning to do with regard to the parks. Stick around. It's 1255. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 108. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Well, the big news 
in the last hour and a half or so is that the Schumer shutdown appears to have temporarily ended. The U.S. Senate has agreed to vote on a continuing resolution which would keep the government operating for a brief period of time. The concession was the Senate agrees to, I don't know, move forward um, on some form of immigration reform. So at least for the time being, a government shutdown appears to be averted. We're now joined on the phone by Congressman Glenn Grothman. Glenn, first of all, good afternoon. And what the heck is going on out there? (laughs) Well, I think I want to explain how we got here in the first place. It does look like the Senate will vote to end the shutdown at 2.30, which means I assume the House will end at 3.30 or 4 o'clock as they get everybody together here, and and that'll be the end of it for about another three weeks. Right. But I, I don't think people realize how silly this is. So people understand the federal budget year begins on October 1st. This is my third year here, and for reasons I am in my uh, actually beginning of my fourth year, um, that still make no sense to me. We never pass a budget on time, okay? We are told we don't even have numbers available to pass a budget yet. So what happens is beginning around October 1st, Congress passes some continuing resolutions just to keep the government open based on last year's figures, knowing that eventually in the budget some people go up 5%, some will go down 5%, but just to keep the government open. I have voted for four of these in the past. I never felt they were particularly hard votes. It was kind of an automatic thing, a nothing vote. So it's highly unusual that somebody would say, I will shut down the government, particularly on an issue unrelated to spending. Immigration. There are thousands of of bills out there. Why? Because I don't have what I want on what they call DACA recipients. We can talk about them in a second. Why should we not have the IRS sending out checks. You know, why should the national parks be um, not everybody employed there? You know, why do I have to wait to get a permit from the EPA? It it doesn't make any sense. It's just ridiculous. And obviously, um, after three days, not every Democrat, but the vast majority of Democrats feel so strongly that we should immediately make all these people who are right now legal, illegal, legal, it's just a bizarre obsession that not every Democrat, I don't want to say it's every Democrat, but why the vast majority of Democrats are willing to shut down the government for that reason, I think is bizarre. And there's no time problem here. I mean, these DACA recipients, some of them have been in the country for over 25 years, and there was never a problem. But now, all of a sudden, uh, we say that we've got to do it now or never. So... Uh, it was something that shouldn't have been necessary. It's something that resulted in unnecessary problems. Congressman, I guess my first question is, where are we going to be a couple weeks from now? Are we going to be having the same conversation? Because let's assume that the the House and the Senate can't come to a consensus on what to do with the DACA recipients. I mean, are, are we going to be looking at another government shutdown? We could be in the same position. I'm a little bit afraid some of the Republicans will get afraid and cave into this blackmail. And there is President Trump has made it clear he wants us to do something on the DACA recipients. And we can do something. But we shouldn't panic and say that if, you know, DACA recipients on welfare will take a welfare family with that culture. Uh, We shouldn't panic and say that we'll make all these DACA recipients legal and then do nothing to solve the underlying problem in the first place. This is about overall 
lack of enforcement of immigration laws. It's about picking the wrong people to come to this country. And I think everybody can agree or should be agreeing that from here on out, immigrants that we take will be good immigrants who are going to get jobs and work hard. And some of these DACA people, they were good immigrants who work hard, but some weren't. We should aim for getting every immigrant a good immigrant. Congressman, why is it that we have such trouble getting budgets in, in in the real world, whether it's individuals sitting down with their household budget or certainly in the private sector where people have to come up with budgets every year by a certain date? Why can't Congress get its act together? Well, I am told by the people negotiating the budget, they don't have numbers available yet to even work off of, which is kind of ridiculous because if you think of it, we're three and a half months into a 12-month budget. And the people who are negotiating the budget say they don't have enough information to even negotiate that budget. All I can say is I think it's Congress's longstanding practice. It has been true each of the three years I have been here. that They haven't got the budget done on time, and I think for many, many years before that. And I guess like everything else, if you're used to doing things wrong, you just keep doing them wrong. <laughs> it is frustrating for what it's worth. The House did pass a budget uh, last July. The Senate never did get even get together a budget as a negotiating document. And, of course, so your listeners are aware, when it comes to a spending bill, it takes 60 votes in the Senate. This is why the Democrats were able to shut down the government. The Republicans only have 51 out of 100 senators. So it will take both Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell to sign off when the budget is finally done, just as it would have taken uh, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer both to vote to keep the government open on one of these simple continuing resolutions. We're talking to Congressman Glenn Grothman. Congressman, in, in Senator Schumer's remarks, um, a lot of blame laid at the feet of, of the White House. Um, I've been listening to a lot of these accounts, and some say the president should have been more involved. The president say, Some say the president's involvement is what caused the problems. I mean, who, who really bears the blame for this, and is it fair to lay it at the doorstep of the president? Not at all. Um, the, the president's not the one voting in the Senate. This should have been an uncontroversial vote. The guts of this bill was just keep spending for another few weeks at the same rate we were spending during the 2016-2017 budget. If you want to be partisan, you always shut it down. When Barack Obama was president, as you know, Jeff, I disagreed with Barack Obama on so many things. But when it came to just passing a simple continuing resolution, I was always there voting for it because it makes it very difficult to run the government when people have to take off and come back and that sort of thing. So, you know, I don't consider myself an overly partisan person. I didn't mind keeping the government open when Barack Obama was president. Uh, and, you know, virtually every Republican, there are a couple exceptions, voted to keep the government open. Chuck Schumer thought he would blackmail Donald Trump and blackmail Republicans into, I guess, immediately saying, all these people who are here illegally, people who came here when they were under age 18, immediately get to be here legally. And uh, there's nothing Donald Trump could do to prevent that other than just surrender. And as you know, Donald Trump got elected on improving the immigration laws, not ignoring the ones we have. So that's not Donald Trump's fault. I think what's going on here, Chuck Schumer uh, is from New York. Uh, he blew it. New York, though, is a state that Donald Trump did not do that well in. So rather than admit that it was his own fault and the people who followed him, Chuck Schumer blames Donald Trump. I don't know what, what else Donald Trump could have done. I mean, it's about as easy a vote as you're going to have. Spend another few weeks spending the same rate as you did last year. 
I mean, that's not a controversial bill. Chuck Schumer should have voted for it the first time. Congressman, let me let me switch gears for a minute. Um, last week, there was a special election in northwest Wisconsin. Uh, the results surprised a lot of people. A Republican leading district. The Republican lost in favor of the Democrat challenger. This has emboldened a lot of Democrats in the state of Wisconsin. I had the governor on a little while ago talking about how he views it as a wake-up call. You, together with every other member of the Wisconsin delegation, up for re-election this coming November. What, if any, lesson is there from what happened in in northwest Wisconsin on last Tuesday? Well, we shouldn't panic. Um, I think you could argue up there that our candidate was not from a city centrally located. I've talked to people who felt that maybe some people went unnecessarily negative on the Democrat candidate, and sometimes negative campaigning doesn't work. On the other hand, it is unquestionably true that we wish more Republicans would have voted. And I think what's going on here, and that was a state election, not a national election, Mm -hmm. is that I think some people, I hate to say, are too comfortable. I mean, the economy right now is good. I I can never remember a time in Wisconsin when the economy was better. And uh, sometimes people go to the polls when they're afraid. And right now, I think things are so good that some people who normally went Republican when things were tough would show up to help Scott Walker or help somebody who would vote with Scott Walker in the future. And a lot of those people on the margin felt things are going well. I don't have to disrupt my routine and go vote today. And uh, quite frankly, the Democrats are still kind of mad, and some of the hardcore Democrats mad, bitter that Donald Trump won, and they're turning out in greater numbers. So I think it's largely a turnout thing. I don't think it's an issue thing, Um, but it is something we are going to have to remind people about next November. You cannot say just because the economy is good and taxes are relative to other states down, and Scott Walker's done a good job. You can't say the same thing on a national level just because Donald Trump is doing a good job with the economy. He's cut your taxes. doesn't mean that things can't get bad again, and we need to get that energy going so we can do more good things and prevent a turnaround on the good things that have been going on so far. Congressman Glenn Grothman, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Good luck this afternoon in Washington. Thanks much. Look forward to taking the vote within a couple hours. Take care. That's uh, Congressman Glenn Grothman, who... um, I actually, I, the House of Representatives, I'm not sure they were scheduled to be in session today, but got to come back to pass whatever version of the budget ref- bill, the continuing resolution that the Senate ends up passing. And then we, we'll see where we are a couple of weeks from now. I mean, I guess that's part of the pause that I have. This is, again, it doesn't matter whether the pe- Democrats are in control or Republicans are in control. It is, it just strikes me as no way to run a government that you have, uh, again, we're three or four months into the fiscal year. And you don't have a budget. And according to Congressman Grothman, you don't even have numbers. Um, just amazing. Okay, when we come back, I want to tell you the story about what at least some Milwaukee County supervisors appear to be planning for the park system. Stick around. It's 119. It's 122. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, th- this has been kicking around for a while, but it, it's it's really hit the front burner's very, very recently. Chris Abley wants more revenue. There's no question about it. And he's been talking for the longest time about, again, doubling the wheel tax. That's going nowhere. But one of the other things that Abley has been talking about doing is charging fees to park down at the lakefront. 
that's been part of the conversation. Well, it's not apparently just limited to lakefront parking. Now, a couple months ago, one of the local newspapers, the Shepherd Express, you know, wrote a story about pay to play for county parks and talking about how, you know, Milwaukee County was apparently considering looking into charging parking fees, not just at prime spots on the lakefront, but at various other spots throughout the, the county. Now, today, our competitors up the dial, our friends up the dial on WISN, you know, released a couple of documents that they had obtained, some of the memos talking about amendments to the county board's recommended budget, including implementation of a pay-to-park program. Here's the idea, that by essentially identifying public parks, not just the lakefront, but public parks, and then going out, hiring private companies. This is the way the plan that they're looking at would work. We'll hire private companies to come in. The private companies will set up parking, essentially paid parking lots in various areas, various parks, and then they'll be in charge of collecting the money. The county will pay them a bunch of money, and then the county will end up getting to keep some. But the bottom line of all this would be, instead of being able to go and park for free, you would be charged for the places you park. And in the the different you know memorandums that were released, and I have some in my hand now. That, and again, these are all in the proposal stage. You know, you, you look at some of the parks that they are looking at, and this would charge for both street parking, um, so parking on the, the parkways, or parking in parking lots. Brown Deer Park, Curry Park, Dretzka Park, Estabrook Park. Okay. I mean, I can just see how some of these people in the county board are thinking. You've got this successful beer garden in Esterbrook Park, right? Something that is completely turned around and revitalized Esterbrook Park. So the idea is, well, let's put in parking meters. We don't want to make people just be able to pull in and park for free. Let's charge people for going to the beer garden. Uh, Grant Park. Uh, let's see. Lake Park. Um all right, the idea, you've got uh, the Bartolotta's Lake Park Bistro. Here, you've got that parking lot there. You can see what some of these people on the county board are thinking. Let's let's put parking meters in that parking lot. Let's charge people for using that parking lot and playing golf at Lake Park or, um, uh, again, going to the restaurant. Lincoln Park, where, you know, you've got the aquatic center that they're thinking about closing down or you've got the golf course um it goes on and on and on all right 414-799-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line let me just say this at first this is the milwaukee county i mean obviously the granddaddy of bad decisions was the pension backdrop okay that nobody can argue with that but beyond the pension scandal this is one of in my opinion the worst Worst ideas ever. Maybe the worst idea ever. The idea that if you want to go and use the public park, which is already supported by our tax dollars, you now can't pull into, I don't know, Brown Deer Park and and go and, and use that facility without having to feed a parking meter. Or if you want to go play golf at Lincoln Park, you can't park your car there without having to feed a parking meter. It is just, you want to talk about something that will drive people out of the park system. You know, this is it. From a golf perspective, I don't think I have ever, ever, 
in all the years I've been playing golf, and I started playing golf when I was eight years old, I don't think I have ever had to pay to park to play at a golf course. I get charged the fees. But, I mean, they're one of the things they are apparently considering, again, are like parking meters in the golf course parking lots. 414-799-1620. This is a stunningly, stunningly bad idea. Um, again, you want to talk about tone deaf, and you read these memorandums, and I understand this idea has been kind of percolating, and it's now just kind of coming to the forefront. Um, I just don't think people in Milwaukee County will stand for it. 414-799-1620. We're back with your calls in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 127. 135, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, here's the way this would work. Milwaukee County would hire private operators. And the private operators would pay a percentage of the parking revenue that is generated. The estimates are maybe it's around 10% or so. So, all right, they've got a charge. Let's say you're trying to raise $1.6 million. They're going to have to charge $16 million in parking fees. So, again, I understand the parking developers get rich off of this idea. The county gets a small benefit, and the taxpayers get absolutely shafted. I mean, seriously, you want to kill beer gardens? You want to kill these successful things that they've been doing in the parks? Well, make people have to feed parking meters and pay a dollar an hour or $2 an hour or whatever to go use the Milwaukee County parks or go to the beer garden on a, on a nice Saturday afternoon. Pat in East Milwaukee, on the east side. Pat, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Jeff, you are I seldom agree with you, but this is one time when I can absolutely say, uh, yes, we are in total agreement. Okay, tell me uh, why. The, the notion that it's only going to be a dollar an hour, it's going to be more like three dollars, three fifty an hour. That's that's what the county um, has allowed in the in the discussion so far. Between two and three fifty an hour. Right. And and who's going to, I mean, seriously, as somebody who does patronize the beer gardens and and loves them, I mean, if I've now got to feed a meter to go to a public park, well, the chances are I'm much more likely to go, I don't know, sit in a patio of a place down the road where I don't have to pay a dime. It's truly a buzz killer. It's truly a buzz killer. And and, um, I I don't know where these people get these ideas, but they're they're so wrong. If Abel had any any political, uh, you know, courage, he would simply say we need to up the property tax levy, the $1.6 million, which amounts to less than 2 bucks a person in the whole county. Instead of saying, well, instead of doing that, we're going to nick you off at $20. It makes, you are absolutely right, it's a 10% uh, scheme that makes no sense right. whatsoever. And, it, I mean, thanks to it. You want to talk about, I mean, you throw around the term regressive. Regressive means it has a disproportionate impact on... On poor people. That, that's the idea. Do, do you want to talk about something that is regressive. You know, here you have a family that wants to go, I don't know, enjoy Dretzka Park, uh, you know, on the northwest side or, or, or whatever. And in, in order to, to do that, you are now going to have to feed meters or however they do it. You're going to have to pay to park. To the extent this idea then extends to, say, people playing at golf courses. Well, like I said, I mean, I've I, I don't think – I mean, you can go up to Whistling Straits and, you know, you park in the parking lot. You don't pay. I, I don't know. I think it's unheard of to expect people to pay um, if they want to put their car in a parking lot while they're paying their, their fees to play golf. And, and of course, th- this is all on this table. 
And I, I just don't know that the general public is aware of this. And look, I understand we've had the, the county executive said, hey, you know, the lakefront parking, you know, we should charge for it. I disagree with him on that. But at least you can argue, all right, it's just limited to the lakefront. But now we're going to talk about expanding this throughout the county system. And let's not make a mistake about it. The only people that are really going to benefit this from this is whoever lands the parking contracts because they're the ones that are going to make the big money. And it's going to come from anybody who wants to use the park. Bill in Oconomowoc. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi, Bill. Um, I, I wanted to make sure I understood you. Did you say the rates would be around $3 an hour? They haven't announced it. It would be somewhere. I mean, they haven't announced it. It would, to generate $1.6 million, if that if they're only getting a 10% rake off, you'd have to, you'd have to have $16 million dollars. Um, in revenue, so it just—they—they they haven't announced exactly what parks they're going to do this in and how many spots that they're going to have. But as a as a revenue generator, I don't think people are aware. First of all, people have to be aware of what it costs to maintain those parks mm-hmm. in the, the capabilities we're used to. Uh, second of all, in if you've been to Chicago lately, you pay when you park. In the Chicago Park. Yeah, and that and that's turned out to be a disaster, by the way, Bill. That's well, a dis- the only that's people that are making the money are the parking operators. Well, Jeff, Jeff, hang on. Not only the people, the taxpayers are benefiting because now we have some revenue to maintain some of these parks. There, it's very costly. I don't. I think you're missing the biggest part of this. Do you have any idea? Of the budget for the county parks, can you tell it to me? I, off the top of my head, how much money they get? No, I don't. Okay. But 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 let, but let me take you back though, Bill. If if the if the rake off if the park if the private parking operators are going to get eighty to ninety percent of the revenue, meaning the parks are only going to get ten to twenty percent, who gets rich off of this? The part well, the private yeah no thanks to see that's that's in the well it's the private parking operators this, this look. I understand that the parks cost money, but at the same time, we already support the parks with our tax dollars. And this idea, you want to talk about counterproductive. You want to kill the beer gardens. You make people have to pay. Feed meters have to pay, I don't know, 2 $3 an hour, have to pay fines if they stay at the meters over. You want to kill usage of the parks. This is the best way to do it. And I, I hope this is one where, as this starts to get attention, this has kind of been under the radar. Like I say, there were some news reports about this in the fall, and, and now there's the documents that actually the meetings and stuff that are being made public here. You want to kill use of the parks. You start widespread charging for people to park in them. And, I mean, what what is with all these county supervisors who always talk about, well, we can't privatize, we can't sell off the parks. Lord knows we've got, you know, vacant, underutilized parks. We can't sell those off. What about the count? This is the same county board, for example, that had an offer of millions of dollars from NML to buy the O'Donnell Park parking structure. Millions of dollars. They said no, and then the county essentially gives it away to the art museum for a dollar. And mark my words, 
You know, I mean, this is one of these pie-in-the-sky things. Five years from now, I predict that that parking structure is going to be in a lot worse shape than it is in now. I understand there's, oh, this is great. You know, we can keep it in public hands and things like that. Well, all right, you had a chance to generate all sorts of revenue. You said no, and instead you're going to stick it to the taxpayers in Milwaukee County. Give me a break. And this is the Milwaukee County Board at its finest and Milwaukee County Executive Chris Abley. It's 143. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 147. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. President Trump created a stir over the weekend by producing an ad. This is by the the Trump election folks that links Democrats to actually murders committed by illegal immigrants. It is a strikingly powerful ad that a number of people would argue is unfair. We're going to be discussing it in the next hour of the program. If you want if you want to see the ad, it's only a 30-second ad, we have a link up. You can text me, you can text 414-799-1620, text the word ad, right, Gru, A-D? If you text the word ad to 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, I'll send you a link to this 30-second video commercial. Right now, it's only on the web, so it's not like there's a plan, at least so far, to buy radio time or to buy TV time for this. But it's just available on the web. If you want to see it, text me the word ad, AD, to 414-799-1620. I will describe it, and we will discuss it in the course of the next pro, next hour. Also coming up in the next hour, a number of area hotels have started implementing a real interesting policy where they won't rent rooms to people in the immediate area And you might think it kind of sounds, what's the word I'm looking for, counterintuitive, but actually there's a reason behind it. It's getting some attention. It's getting some criticism. Um, We're going to be discussing that as well, so stick around. Um, Interesting development today, the federal civil rights suit brought against former Milwaukee County Sheriff David A. Clark by this guy named uh, Dan Black. Uh, They picked the jury, and the trial is now underway. You will recall this was the situation where um, Clark... And this Dan Black are on this flight from Dallas to Milwaukee in January of 2017. Black sees Clark wearing Dallas Cowboys gear and asks if he's David Clark. Clark said he was. Black shook his head and walked away back to his seat and coach. When the plane landed, Black was greeted by sheriff's deputies who had been directed by Clark to take Black aside and question him, which they did. They then escorted him out of the airport. Black then goes public with this story, um, posted on social media about the incident, filed a complaint with the county. Clark responded with two Facebook posts on January 18th and 19th. One included Black's photo and called him um, Snowflake. <laughs> you know, you, re- you remember the story. Uh, cheer up, Snowflake. If Sheriff Clark were to um, really harass you, you wouldn't be around to whine about it. Okay, so what happens then is the so-called victim he, he files a number of civil rights complaints and m- a number of allegations. Most of them get dismissed. But the, the one that is left is that um, essentially uh, his civil – he claims his civil rights were were violated when the sheriff, you know, retaliated against him um, by, by making – 
this particular posting and that kind of like it chilled his freedom of expression. Um, the attorney for Clark and Clark is not at the trial. The attorney for Clark says that far from chilling blacks free speech, Clark's posts about him only encouraged him, citing three television interviews he gave about the airport incident and its aftermath. This seems to me like, again, the kind of you-know-whatting match that develops over social media type of things. And, um, I, I, again, I, I don't know what a jury is going to end up doing with this other than to say that ultimately the taxpayers are probably on the hook for this uh, because it was posted on Sheriff Clark's official thing. I, I have I have not been very proud of Sheriff Clark for doing this. Um, I remain skeptical of the fact that there were real damages over the result of this. And, again, like I say, this just – looks to me like the typical Internet spat that people get into as opposed to a federal civil rights claim. But the trial is going on and people will decide. The other really interesting story over the weekend is the fallout and the follow-up to this lead poisoning issue. Um, Milwaukee has old pipes. Um, The pipes are lead pipes. And there is a concern about drinking water through the lead pipes. I think Milwaukee's mistake, and this goes back years and years, was not replacing the pipes as they went along and tearing. When, when, for example, when they tore up the roadways, I thought the, the piping should have been replaced. They, they did not do that. Now, the pipes are treated with this sort of anti-corrosion thing, which is supposed to stop the lead from getting loose. Um, some people say, though, as a remedy, that's kind of like, I don't know, um, drinking. What's the example they use? It's like drinking through a, a lead straw that has, uh, again, some anti-corrosive thing on the inside. Well, it, you, you wouldn't do that under normal circumstances. But anyhow, apparently what, what happened was a couple of years ago, in 2015, um, the guy who was the city's director of disease control and environmental health sent along a, a memo um, warning that there was a looming threat facing Milwaukee children who get their drinking water from um, antiquated lead pipes. And it also had a warning that replacing water mains would disturb the pipes and significantly red la- um, raise lead levels. In other words, you shouldn't just replace the water mains, you should replace all the pipes. N- nothing ended up happening. The mayor is now saying that he never saw that memo, that it went to the city health commissioner, the former city health commissioner, um, who was fired a couple weeks ago, and that uh, uh, Bevan Baker never passed it on to the mayor, which... Um, I mean, I, I have no reason to, to doubt. I don't think Tom Barrett would lie about something like this. But it is kind of this amazing thing. Barrett's saying, hey, I never saw this. And I, if this guy had this huge concern, I don't understand why he didn't walk into my office and just give it to me. To which, you know, other people are saying, well, no, there was a structure in the health department and you went through channels. And just like, you know, if you're in the military and, you know, you, you complain to your superior, you don't go to the general and complain. And that's apparently the environment that was going on in the city of Milwaukee. Regardless of what Tom Barrett knew and when he knew it, it's a mess. Now, I understand there's groups out there that are calling for the mayor to resign over this. I don't think that's appropriate, but but it's a mess. And to the extent that we have a lead poisoning issue or elevated levels of lead, it, it's been it's been because I think of negligence and neglect that's been going on in the city for years and years by not 
being willing to spend the money to do what you needed to do to replace the pipes. It's sort of like the deep tunnel. You know, all right, we, we've got the deep tunnel, and it works fine most of the time until there's a lot of rain. You would not have been having these problems if, again, instead of the deep tunnel, we had been separating the storm sewers from the sanitary sewers all along as we went through the process of rebuilding the city. But we didn't do it because it was easier to spread the cost by making the suburbs pay for the deep tunnel. And the deep tunnel works most of the time, but not all of the time. It's 154. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Is the corner bar going the way of the dinosaur? Some new research says yes. Oh, I don't buy that at all. What's the likelihood that the trend turns back around? Find out at 3.34 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News with John McCure, who's producing the show today and always. What you need to know is, see, some people collect stamps. Some people collect first editions. I collect bars. And and one of the things, whenever I'm going into a a new town or a town I haven't been into in ages, I always go and I try to see, is there a couple, are are there bars that I want to see? And then I... I, I end up doing that, and then I end up staying in the bars and stuff. And so I, I you know, um, it, it's just when, whenever, when I was in Venice, the, the one place I had to see was, you know, um, Harry's Cafe American, which is where Ernest Hemingway supposedly invented some drink or stuff. And it was so we, we ended up going there when I was in Venice. Most expensive gin and tonic that I have ever had in my life. It was like 25, Belinda, it was like 25 bucks. I mean, but, you know, I, I went to Harry's Cafe American in Venice, and I can say, I did it. Exactly. I was just going to, you took the words out of my mouth. You could say you did it. I, and I, and I only did it once. And when the guy came around and said, you, I mean, there were four of us. Okay. So there's four of us. And so all the drinks are like that. I'm talking like a hundred bucks for a round of drinks. And it's kind of like, do you want another one? We're all, no, 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 no. But we, but we, we had, we had the one drink. So is the corner bar going the other way? Well, don't say that to some of the corner bars I hang out in. All right. When we come back, we're going to be talking about this policy that some local motels have that say, you know, if you live in the community, we don't want you to stay here. And again, if you want to see this very controversial ad that the Trump administration, actually the Trump campaign is putting out, um, text me the word ad, AD to 414-799-1620. We're going to be discussing that as well. Right now it is 159. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wacker, WTMJ. Is it discrimination? Is it unfair? Or is it just good business policy? Uh, Fox 6 had this story, and it caught my attention. Let me just share a portion of it with you as they report it. They, they booked reservations at local hotels. When they arrived, they were turned away. The reason is where they live. Mary Schwabe of Racine was planning a staycation for her family. We decided to take our grandkids during the Christmas holiday to a hotel. I found this Comfort Suites, which had a splash pad, which for a one, three, or four-year-old is like perfect. Less than a week after booking, she got a call from the hotel, which is near the Milwaukee airport. Um, The hotel told me they were canceling my reservation. There was no way around it. Turns out the hotel has a policy that its guests must either be a business traveler or must live more than 30 miles away. She tells the TV station, they told me they had issues with people coming to stay in the area, not taking care of the facility, damaging things and stuff. 
The Wisco Hotel Group tells Fox 6's Contact 6, before this policy, it had major problems with local guests using, misusing our hotels for local parties and events. It went on to say rooms became overcrowded and there was extensive noise and littering. Lady says, I just wanted the dang splash, splash pad. Um, but they, they would not, they would not allow her to rent a room because again, you know, she lives too close to the hotel and she's not a business traveler um then they've got the story of another woman who said she booked rooms at the holiday inn near the airport for a stepdaughter's six <clears throat> sweet 16 party when they showed up she was turned away i was just standing there crying now i have ice cream cake melting i have all this food four kids are actually right here and one walked in through the door um she says she was told the hotel doesn't accept reservations from her zip code or anywhere within 30 miles i was more offended because this particular zip code there are a lot of african americans in and i was kind of like is this i didn't know where to go with the moment is this a racial thing or is it just i didn't know what to think they were eventually able to find a, another hotel to have the party the hotel group says it does its best to cancel reservations in advance. It also says that other hotels in Milwaukee have the same policy. Here's the full explanation that this particular hotel group gives. Our policy was born out of a determination to focus on the business traveler or those guests who reside outside the area, at least outside the 30-mile radius, who usually come into the area from out of state via plane and automobile and stay a day or two at the hotels. Before having this policy, our hotels were experiencing major problems with local guests using, misusing our hotels beyond their intended use for local parties and events. Let me translate. What they're saying is that um, people would, would rent the rooms and they weren't really using them to stay in. They were using them to party in um, and the rooms ended up getting trashed. All right, the thing continues. We experienced guests sneaking friends and or family members into their rooms and our pool area for parties. Our guest rooms became overcrowded beyond the maximum capacity of those rooms. There was extensive noise in the guest rooms, hallways, and breakfast area. We found excessive littering in the hotels and parking lots, all of which generated complaints from our other guests who stayed at the hotels, increased our housekeeping needs, sometimes requiring security or even police intervention. We tried many different things to correct this, but found that once a room was rented, we had very little control over what our guests did and how they conducted themselves while in the property. We determined that the vast majority of these issues were initiated by guests who lived within a 30-mile radius of the hotels and thus created our problems. All right. Um, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So here's what at least some of these hotels are saying. They're saying, you know, we we will not rent rooms to people who are, are locals because we've been having problems with this. We cater to a business traveler or people are going to come in and stay a couple days. What we've been finding is a problem with people who will rent a room from the area and then use it like as a party room and next thing you know instead of one or two people we have 10 people there and it's noisy and it creates all these problems and people are trying to sneak other people into the pool area and things like that and it's disturbing to our other guests 414-799-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk or text line does this policy strike you as unreasonable is this discriminatory should the hotel be allowed to do 
this. Um, and, and candidly, right now, I think it's pretty clear the law does not prevent them from doing this. I mean, the law, as long as they uniformly impose a rule that says, okay, if you live within a 30-mile radius, you, you can't book the rooms, I think that um, it's it's pretty clear that you know it's not going to violate the law. But I guess the question becomes, should it? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will come down. I'll tell you where I come in on this, and then we're going to discuss in just a minute. But is it fundamentally unfair that these hotels, and particularly it's it's the ones, I don't think we're talking about the Fister stuff, where it's the ones that have the pool area, that's got the splash pads, where people want to use the rooms for a party. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 214. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 217. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're just tuning in, uh, Channel 6 had this story the other day. Apparently, there are a number of area motels, or at least one of the area motel groups, that has a policy that you cannot book a room there unless you are either a business traveler or you come from uh, beyond a 30-mile radius. And the reason they say is they said they, they have a problem with locals essentially like renting rooms at the hotel and then kind of running wild. You rent a room and it's, hey, this is the party room, and instead of two people, next thing you know, you've got eight or ten people and there's a party and there's all sorts of people that are sneaking into the hotel pool and using the splash pad and all that. So this is their way of dealing with it. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess I, I see two things here. First of all, I think that they should have the right to do whatever they want with regard to renting. You know, and this isn't going to be for every hotel. But, I mean, I understand if you've got a problem with, uh, again, people from the area using this these rooms as party rooms, essentially instead of what their real business model is and disturbing other people, I think they have every right to do that. Now, the caveat, the catch is... I think you have to make sure you disclose that. I mean, when somebody is called, I mean, okay, I'm we're I'm going out of town um, in about a month or so, going going on vacation for a week, and you know, I've, I've made I've booked the place um, months and months in advance. If I get there and all of a sudden they say to me, "Oh, I'm sorry, we don't rent rooms to people from Wisconsin because we find people from Wisconsin to be drunken buffoons when they get here, so we have that policy." Well, okay, I, I'd have an issue, but I'd especially have an issue that I wasn't told up front with that. But as long as they tell people up front, and that does appear to be part of the problem, at least with one of the two people that Channel 6 found, you know, they show up, they've got the reservation, and then they're told no. But as long as you tell people up front, which is what they did with the other person they found, I, I think that the business has the right to do this. 414-799-1620. And again, if it creates enough problems and there's enough demand, well, okay, other hotels in the area will be able to say, okay, well, we don't have a concern with that. You know, we'll, we'll love to rent to the locals. Let's start with Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're first. Hello. Hey, Jeff. About three years ago, the heat in my apartment building broke down, and I had to go stay at a neighborhood hotel. And if when I got there, they had pulled that nonsense with me, I would have been really, really angry. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, at the same time, if they had told you that in advance, what would you have done? You would have gone to another hotel, right? Yeah, I would have just said thanks, and I would have hung up and gotten a different hotel. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, th- and see, and that's the th- that's the thing. Like I say, I don't think this is – and I, look, I went through the, the same sort of thing. Years and years ago, we were having um, the house remodeled. And this was years ago. And, and so we didn't want to stay in our house during 
the remodeling. So what we ended up doing is, is we kind of moved in for about a month at, you know, uh, uh, like one of the suites, S-U-I-T-E suite, hotels that were like a half a mile from where we lived. And so, you know, it was close enough so that you could run home and get stuff, but, you know, we weren't staying there. So, I mean, that was under this sort of policy, I guess, theoretically, you know, we would have been able to book at that hotel, but would we would have been able to book at other hotels. And, and like I say, I understand the idea of people wanting like the long-term stays. Let's be honest. What the problem is that they're having is that people rent these rooms and then use them um, essentially as party rooms. And they find that, you know, most of the time that is occurring, you know, with the, with the locals. So that's just what their policy is. And the reality is by taking that policy, they're going to lose business. They're going to lose the business of the people who, uh, again, your house is being remodeled. You want to stay there. The heat in your apartment goes out or you lose power in your apartment. So you need some place to stay for a night or two. This policy will drive you, you know, you won't be able to give that hotel business, but there apparently willing to to do that and i think they have the right to do it as long as they do it across the board and as long as again they, they tell you up front that they're doing it if i knew for example that i was going to be out of the house because we had the construction that was starting and i make arrangements and i make the reservations then i get there and i show up with my bags and they say well i'm sorry you know you can't be here i would be mad as you know what as well but as long as you oppose it across impose the policy across the board um i i think they have a right to do it and you have a right to stay wherever it is that that you you want. And I guess the larger point is it is unfortunate that you have some people who are apparently misusing the hotel's facilities to such an extent that they need to implement this. But I think as a business, they should have the right to do it again as long as they as long as they tell people up front and, you know, don't take the reservations. Once they take the reservations, um and if they're going to do it without the zip code or the address and you show up, well, I think that's a whole different story. Just saying. All right. When we come back, I want to talk about the very controversial ad that President Trump released over the weekend on the Internet. If you want to see it, you can text me the word ad, A-D, to 414-799-1620. It's 1222. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 225. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It won't be the most comfortable conversation you've ever had, but it's one that needs to be done. Teaching kids about consent in light of the Me Too movement. Gene Miller gets tips from an expert. 620 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. Be sure to check that out. All right. Um, if you want to see this, you can text me the word add to 414-799-1620. It's, it's 30 seconds. Now, let me give you a little bit of the background on this before we open up the phone lines. Um, the, the government has reached a tentative agreement. That was the big news about 1145 this morning. You had uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, and it takes 60 votes on a budget matter to move the process along, announcing that the Republicans and the Democrats had cut a deal and that the government would continue to be funded for about 17 days. And the promise was that there would be a discussion or the Senate would agree to take up immigration on this DACA thing with the Dreamers um, sometime by early March. Okay, that was what the agreement was. Now, a number of us thought it was outrageous that government funding, the funding to keep the government running, whatever that means, was being held hostage by this immigration issue. I mean, to me, and again, I've said this before, our immigration laws, 
need major reform. I leave that to people who are smarter than me to figure out what that reform should be. But the idea that we're going to hold the government hostage, we're going to not, um, I don't know, we're going to close the Smithsonian's, we're not going to let people get replacement um, Social Security cards over an issue completely unrelated to finance. That that was what the Democrats were doing, and I thought that that was appalling. And I know Republicans have done it in the past, but I, I think it's no way to run the government. So anyhow, the government shutdown was going on in part because of concerns about immigration and what we do with people who are in this country um, illegally but have have come in who came into this country illegally you know the so-called dreamers okay so on Saturday afternoon the president uh, the Donald J Trump for president uh, campaign released the channel on YouTube released a campaign ad called complicit um, here's what it does it starts off with showing courtroom footage of a guy named Luis Bracamontes, who was an illegal immigrant who um, accused, uh, he was involved in killing two Sacramento area sheriff's deputies in 2014. So it starts off with footage of him in the courtroom where he says, the only thing I blanking regret, although he doesn't say blanking, is that I blanking just killed two. And the text appears on the screen, except they kind of dot out, you know, the, the bad words that he's using. An announcer describes him as pure eagle, evil, pure eagle, pure evil, and declares that, quote, President Trump is right. Build the wall. Deport criminals. Stop illegal immigration now. Democrats who stand in our way will be complicit in every murder committed by illegal immigrants. And during this last line where he's saying, you know, Democrats who stand in our way will be complicit in every murder committed by illegal immigrants. They're showing images of House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, Senate Minority Whip Dick Durbin and Senate Majority Minority Leader Chuck Schumer are appearing on on the screen. So if you get the idea, this is a really, really hard hitting ad. And it says that, okay, everybody who's uh, again supporting illegal immigration is going to have blood on their hands when people illegally in this country commit crimes. And the context of this, once again, is it's the budget is being held up, at least at the time, was being held up over issues with regard to, I mean, legal immigration, illegal immigration. Do we allow the dreamers to stay in the country, etc.? Well, you know, immediately after this came out, there was an incredible backlash. Number of Democrats extremely upset, took this very, very personally. Um, Paul Ryan uh, said that he didn't know if it was necessarily productive. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Was this campaign ad... Um, over the top, was this, I don't know, the, the Willie Horton ad of 2018? Everybody remembers, or if you are of a certain age, you remember the, the Willie Horton ad, which was an ad that ran a very few times that uh, the Michael Dukakis campaign says this is the reason why they thought they, they lost to you know the first President Bush that linked Willie Horton, who was a guy that got out while Dukakis was the governor of wherever. All right, is this the Willie Horton ad? Or is Trump raising a legitimate concern, and does he, in fact, have a point? 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
Let's see. Our text. Jeff and Appleton text. The ad goes a little bit too far. I'm against illegal immigration, against protecting illegals. Problem is it suggests all illegals are murderers. Um, let's see. Here's another note. I'm beginning to think that there is method to his madness. The more outrageous his comments, the more likely the media is to cover it. This appears to be the only way the media pays attention to anything constructive Trump is trying to do. Such a pathetic situation. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Iconet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, I, I am of two minds re- regarding this particular ad. First of all, I think there is a legitimate issue that, that is here. And look, I, I'll be honest. I have said this before. I Mostly in the context of sanctuary cities, I mean, I think you have situations where cities that do not cooperate with, for example, immigration and have dangerous people that are in custody turn those people loose on the street and then those people go out and commit crimes including things like murder or assault or rape or whatever. Yes, I think the people in those cities who've made those decisions, I, I do think it's fair to say they have blood on their hands. That That's just because it is that policy that directly has turned dangerous people back out onto the street, right? So I have used that phrase, and I think that that's, I think that's fair when you have dangerous people um, that they're back out on the street. Now, this is kind of that larger and broader brush, though, of, of the entire immigration system. And keep in mind, you know, this is brought out in response to the dreamers' concern, and I don't think that there's too many dreamers who are out there that are committing these type of violent crimes and the murders, like some people who were set free by sanctuary city policies. I also think that there is a time and a place for everything, and I'm not sure how constructive and good the timing of this was. Let's talk to Sam and McHenry. Sam, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, how are you doing, Jeff? Good. What do you think? Well, personally, I don't think I have a problem with it because this this situation here is just getting so out of control here. And when the Democrats decide to hold up a federal budget over something that has absolutely nothing to do with the budget, like mm-hmm. you pointed out earlier, right? you got to fire back at some point. You know, I would say to all these people that are angry about what Trump ran or this ad, Go tell that to the families that have lost loved ones, to uh, criminals that have been deported multiple times and have come back to commit serious crimes. And now they're hanging out in these sanctuary cities, and you have mayors and governors that have said that, oh, no, we're going to stand up to the feds now. Why say lock them all up in jail then? Let mm-hmm. them stand up to the feds. Well, again, and, and I see, and I don't, I mean, Sam, thanks to God, I don't disagree with, like, that's why, see, I see this, first of all, that the sanctuary cities, that where people are arrested for crimes and then are turned back out on the street without immigration being notified. Yeah, I, I think the people who are responsible there for that policy, I agree with you. I think they are di- indirectly, maybe even directly, responsible for the carnage that person they have put back on the street has caused. And I think I guess that's fair. This is, of course, a much broader type of situation. But, you know, at the same time, you know, politics is not necessarily about the art of subtlety. And if you look at a lot of the criticisms and the things that are said about President Trump, th- those criticisms aren't subtle either. I think sometimes the president would benefit himself by kind of staying a- above above the fray. That is, of course, not his nature, though, and that's how these different things play out. To tell you the truth, though, all the, the fur over this ad, once again, this is going to be forgotten very shortly. Coming up next... The book banners are back at it again. And in this case, it's a couple of lefties 
out in the Dane County area who are going after what is generally considered to be a classic. We'll talk about it. Stick around. It's 12-12. is 2.39. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A couple weeks ago, I did this story about how people who write children's books are now finding them censored. There's, there are what they call sensitivity editors who now go through children's books with a fine-tooth comb trying to identify references that might be objectionable to, to someone, even in the area of children's books, and then they get sent back to the authors to be rewritten, in some cases rewritten multiple times, because Lord knows we wouldn't want to have anything out there that anybody anywhere might find to be offensive. Now, great literature is always, and even not great literature, I guess, is always a product of its, of its time. Um, if you, if you go back and read Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer, it is a product of its time, and there are references which would clearly be considered by today's standards to be, to be racist. But, they weren't necessarily thought that way, or they were more acceptable, again, at the time those books were written. But they stand, again, as as something that, that is a reflection of the time that they were written in. Now, I think most of us, if you were to ask me what the great American novel is, I could probably give you two or three. But I, I think certainly on my list and on everybody's list would be Harper Lee's book To Kill a Mockingbird, which came up and came out in the early sixties. Um, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, was it's the story of a of a five year old girl growing up during the Great Depression in a small southern town. Um, the, the lead character, of course, Atticus Finch, lawyer representing a black man who's accused of raping and beating a white woman. Okay, you know, you've probably seen the movie there um, as well. But the book uh, is just it's pretty much required reading in every high school English class. It is considered to be a great American novel, but it is, of course, set in the Great Depression in a small southern town. And one of the underlying themes of the book, and there are several, but it reflects the, the inherent racism of, of the town. It's got use of words that would be objectionable by today's standards. But that doesn't change the fact that it is an impactful and a powerful book. Why do I bring this up? Because there is a Wisconsin couple, um, they are lawyers, I believe, um, who are from Cottage Grove, um, and the, the kids, their kid go, their kid is a 14 year old freshman who goes to Monona Grove High School. After reading the book, um, the couple, the guy, was shocked to learn how often racial slurs were used. And, and that's true because the book again captures the environment of that small town during the Depression. Here's what the guy says. Imagine sitting in a classroom, put yourself in the shoes of a child of color, and hearing the N-word being spoken over and over again. It's very demeaning. I do want do not want my children to be exposed to that. And so this couple is essentially demanding that the book, which covers, you know, issues like racial segregation, racism, and, and violence, um, they are demanding that this novel be removed from the curriculum at the, the high school. 
414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The district is apparently reviewing the request, and a committee, give us strength, will make a recommendation to the superintendent. Oh, um, so... 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Right? Is it time, I mean, is it time to say because this book deals with these type of concepts and, and uses the, the N-word in trying to explain and deal with racial segregation and prejudice and all those things, is it unacceptable reading in the schools? Should it be banned? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We've only got a couple minutes, but I have to tell you, this: these are these topics that just drive me absolutely crazy. That This idea that you can sanitize history, this idea that you've got the father saying, well, you know, uh, imagine being an African-American child and hearing the N-word being spoken over and over again. It's very demeaning. I don't want my children exposed to that. My response would be, Look, this is a teachable sort of moment. The conversation about To Kill a Mockingbird and other sorts of books, it's not that it glorifies segregation. It's not that it glorifies the treatment of African Americans. Matter of fact, it makes exactly the opposite point. It highlights bigotry. It reflects something that is going on in the country at a particular point of time. And if you're not going to teach a book like this, you know, seriously, what are we going to be able to teach? Can we take on no controversial subjects? Obviously, you know, I mean, there's other sorts of controversial books that get presented that have a lot less literary significance than The Kill a Mockingbird. If this was something that was, I don't know, celebrating gender inclusivity, all right, would, would that be okay? But now we're going to strike classics. 414-799-1620. See, I have a text here. I uh, um, as a student, um, I was taught this book at MPS. Nobody seemed to be offended. Take time off to uh, take time to uh, take the the bubble wrap off in Monona. Another text: How can young people learn about real racism if they are not exposed to it? Kim says, "Didn't it used to be liberals who fought against banning books? How ironic!" Um, yes. Here's another text. Back in the book 1984, George Orwell writes about his lead character, Winston, who works at his job in the Ministry of History, and his job is literally to change historical fact that people find unnecessary or uncomfortable. I mean, again, a, amen. I mean, amen. Another text. What's worse, learning about how wrong racism is through a story written during that time or pretending the pain and ignorance never happened? See, that's precisely... I guess it is precisely my point with regard to all this. I don't believe that, for example, as a matter of curriculum, if you had something that was gratuitously offensive, whether it was offensive because of sex or violence or racism or, you know, whatever. I mean, I, at that point in time, would I say should it be required reading on a high school list? Of course not. But but that's not what Mockingbird is all about, and I don't think anybody seriously thinks it. But here again, you have snowflake parents in this case who are saying, well, I, I mean, th- this word is being used gratuitously. I just don't think that the children should be exposed to it. Well, well, no. I mean, that's the place. These are the classrooms. This, I mean, teach about how the prejudice, and, and again, it's not like, if you read Mockingbird, it's not like the, the prejudice characters are glorified in this in any way, shape, or form. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Harris in Milwaukee, or Hans in Milwaukee. You're on WTMJ. Good 
Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon. Uh, okay, I went to Catholic schools. All right, I read To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm 58 years old, about your age. Thanks for making me feel old there, pal. <laughs> go, <laughs> You're go, welcome. Go, go, go ahead. <laughs> I don't think it's right for teachers to say what books to read. Okay? But I do, and on the same right, I also don't believe on banning books. That's what the library is for. I went to Pius Eleventh High School. And I got in trouble at St. Sebastian's grade school for reading Lord of the, or not, uh, Lord, Lord of, of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Yeah, no, thanks to call Hines. I mean, look, it, I understand that there's books that are going to be controversial. Now, where I disagree with you is, I, I mean, I, I think, I think that there needs to be required reading. You're in a freshman English class. You you there, you have to put together a, a book list. But I mean, where do we draw the line here? And again, we're not we're not even talking about teaching Mockingbird to fifth and sixth graders, for example. You know, and my guess is a lot of them perhaps have seen that that great movie. But we're what we're talking about is again. <sighs> We're, we're talking about high schoolers, and, and the, the idea of I think high school uh, schoolers have been uh, exposed to that. Also, you know, one of the texters makes the point of, "Gee, you know, you think anybody's listened to rap music where that particular objectionable word is probably used in many rap songs, like every second or third word?" But you're going to take it out, or you're going to ban Mockingbird from the classroom. I mean, I would be interested to talk to these two people who are the book banners and say, "Well, I'm just kind of curious. Do you not allow, you know, your son to?" listen to rap music because you don't want him to be exposed to the misogynistic concepts or the violence or the repeated use of of the n-word let's talk to tom in waukesha tom you're on wtmj hello hey good afternoon i am a teacher high school teacher Mm -hmm. and at our school at our in our freshman level we teach to kill a mockingbird Mm -hmm. from a historical science uh literary and ethical standpoint so we we study it and all of our freshmen study it right from all those aspects and it's a tremendous teaching opportunity well well yeah i mean i'm trying to right exactly i mean it has to be approached again in, in the right fashion but you know mockingbird for, first of all the the it, it's not something that contains sort of, in my opinion, like gratuitous references. I think it's incredibly well written and does, I mean, it's an uncomfortable read in some cases, but but isn't that what literature is about sometimes, to make people uncomfortable? Well, and it's it's not intended to make you uncomfortable, and it doesn't have to be, and it's, it's teaching kids that this is what happened, yeah. and it was wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's, well, I mean, and that's not, we don't shove that down their throats, but well, that's a conclusion anybody draws, I yeah. think, from reading the book. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, it's you, you can't put your head in the sand and say, "Oh, this is you know a, an uncomfortable subject," so you just completely ignore it. You do it appropriately, and you certainly trust that the teachers will do it. Right. In an appropriate way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I start to wonder, okay, if you're going to ban Mockingbird, do you, do you then have to teach, like, uh, Brad, you have to, do you have to, what do you do with Fahrenheit 451? You know, where they, they used to ban all the, the burn all the uncomfortable books. Yeah. 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 No, thanks. Now, yeah. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Again, it, it's just, it, it is, it's all about how you uh, approach stuff. But the, this is, where we are in 2018, where you have people who are trying to, uh, again, just 
pretend that things that went on in this country and in this world didn't go on. And the idea that, well, we're going to shelter people. This this might be uncomfortable for this. So, you know, we don't want uh, somebody like sitting in the classroom being exposed to this. Well, okay, that, that's where you should be exposed to this stuff. That's how you learn about history. So in many cases, you choose not to repeat it. It is 255. When we come back, John McCure and uh, Melissa Barkley will find out what they have on their minds on uh, Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around.